0: Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Good to see you again for our second podcast in our series on the second half of American history. In the first podcast, I introduced the United States of America, not only as a name or term, but also in what that means to Americans and what does the United States as a title as a country, how is that interpreted by millions around the world? We also looked in that first podcast, the way that we talk about the white Southerners and the ghosts of the Confederacy. We looked at the unfortunate massive casualty count north of 623,000 soldiers as a result of the American Civil War. We saw again that because so much of the fighting and destruction of land and harbors was in the South, that the North is a lot easier for them to simply pick up and move on where things were from 1861. The South doesn't have the luxury of doing that. So in this second podcast, we're going to see, sadly, how this idea of the federal program called Reconstruction, unfortunately, comes to a grinding halt. And we're going to begin by looking at African-American aspirations post-1865. And there was a government program that was designed to provide the foundation for former slaves, now U.S. citizens, to begin to hit the ground running as best they can with the assistance of the federal government, not in terms of dollars, But in terms of so much more. And that organization, as designed in March of 1865, one month before Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, that organization was known as the Freedmen's Bureau. And the Freedmen's Bureau, for those that wish to look that up, that's F R E E D M A N apostrophe S, Bureau, the Freedmen's Bureau. And what that was is in order, the Bureau was to provide social, educational, as well as African economic services, excuse me, to African Americans, to former slaves. So again, social, educational, and economic services. The idea was beyond honorable and noteworthy, and initially it did enjoy some successes in 1865, 66, and 67, but eventually its effectiveness started to wane as the 1860s wore on, By the early 1870s, almost nothing was being done from the Freedmen's Bureau on behalf of freed African-Americans. And by 1873, the Freedmen's Bureau was quietly shut down. So when I cover this in class, I ask my students, why do you think it was shut down? Why do you think that Federal Bureau was yanked, was, was shut down the way it was? I don't think I've ever had any answer other than, boom, ran out of funding. Well, isn't that the reason almost any government program ends, right? Ran out of funding. But that wasn't the case with the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau had plenty of money. It had a massive budget. That wasn't the issue. The problem, ladies and gentlemen, was they couldn't find anybody to actually work in the Freedmen's Bureau. As time went on, the Freedmen's Bureau was gutted, not because of money, but because of human resources, human beings to work in the various divisions of the Bureau at the locations throughout the United States. By 1873, they couldn't sustain themselves anymore and shut down. And you say, wait a minute, hold, hold on. That was just in the south though, right? Oh, no, 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 no. That was in the north as well, northern states. They say, wait a minute, I, I thought the northerners were always, you know, before the war talking about free the slaves, free the slaves, send them up here. We'll take care of them. We'll we'll honor them, etc." Well, yeah, that was before the war. The war is over with now. And those signs that the northerners once said, send your slaves up here, Those suddenly were flipped around and were now do not enter sign, wrong way signs. Yes, the way the North was looking at it post-1865 is, hey, Southerners, those millions of slaves that you had, they're your problem, not ours. And think about it, listeners. Think about, again, having a massive group of people that literally have no workable skill set beyond agriculture. A vocabulary that was only limited truly to the words they needed to know from the masters or the owners, as well as the colloquial language amongst one another. You're literally going to have to teach them to read and write before you can start even introducing any type of academic subject. That's going to take time. That's going to cost money. And the Northerners didn't want that problem. If you would like to see, sadly, a modern, more modern-day version of this, just look at what happened to the German economy when the wall came down in November <clears throat> excuse me, again, of 1989. The German economy actually faltered because you had a massive group of East Germans that didn't have computer skills, that didn't have the modern education of Western societies because they were kept in a time warp. So going back to 1939. So as a result of this, the Germans had trouble trying to assimilate their own brothers and sisters, but with a very different background. It's not easy. Sure, it sounds extremely honorable. Yes, free these people and we will assimilate. We'll work with them. Case by case basis, you might be able to do that but not when it's an entire population so large that it could form its own independent country. That's a different story. And that sadly is what happened to the Freedmen's Bureau. Well, what about the president of the United States? Why didn't Lincoln react? Well, remember Lincoln's long gone at this point. By 1873, we're out of Lincoln's term because of the assassination. Andrew Johnson's one term, he didn't react throughout the years that he was president to try to staff the Freedmen's Bureau. And of course, with his successor, that of Ulysses Grant, we don't see any efforts there that were noteworthy to try to keep the Freedmen's Bureau alive. But wait a minute then. Independent of the Freedmen's Bureau, How and why eventually did this Civil Rights Act of 1866 ultimately get passed? Well, it was with the significant help of Thaddeus Stevens, important politician in Washington, D.C., who lived from 1792 to 1868, Johnson vetoed the bill, and Thaddeus Stevens rounded up the support to get that two-thirds majority to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1866 to give African Americans, the rights of every other white American. You might say, well, wait a minute. Then what was the Johnson administration, Lyndon Johnson, well into the 20th century? He passed a Civil Rights Act basically on the same year, 100 years later. And you'd be right. Why did he have to pass it then? Because this one in 1866 largely fell apart for reasons that we're going to see as this podcast and future ones continue to reveal. In terms of African-American rights supporters, remember again that there were some Northerners, as well as some white Southerners, that were sympathetic to the plight of the new citizens of the United States that largely has no place to call home, has no education to to speak of, therefore a limited skill set. These individuals were, were called the derogatory term of scallywags, a term for white Southerners who supported African-American rights. The Northern equivalent of that derogatory term was carpetbaggers. At the same time, an attempt to get that Civil Rights Act passed also became known as the 1866 Southern Homestead Act. This is where you might be familiar with the phrase 40 acres and a mule. Remember again, though, Where was the federal government getting 40 acres of land in the south to dole out to every african-american family? Remember where that government was getting the land from the countless massive plantations whose owners can no longer afford the property taxes or even the mortgage because there is no longer a slave-based economy when those plantation owners had to switch over to the economic model called a waged based economy, where every worker on their property was being paid, their profit margins evaporated, their farms and plantations largely went belly up until it was carved away from them to leave them with a tiny little plot of land that they and their immediate family can work. So again, think about the set up here, the foundation for the not only of racism, but anger and violence as these plantation owners and their families and their kids, grandkids and great-grandkids looking out on a land that they once owned, but because of the, America, the way the American Civil War ended, they no longer have the rights to that property. Again, I'm not saying that to sympathize with the Southern former plantation owners, but I am trying to provide the seeds for the racism and violence, vehement violence, that is about to unfold in the deep south. So again, that was the Southern Homestead Act of 1866. I have some listeners out there that say, hey, wait a minute, I thought that also applied to land west of the Mississippi River for anybody that dared to travel that far out west, and that is true too. It's also the same idea as the Homestead Act. I will discuss that in a later podcast though, that part of the uh, the act. Please also note too, 40 acres is a decent amount of land. The idea of a mule though, please note that of all the livestock that could be given to African Americans to work with, you could have the ox, you could have the horse, the donkey, or the mule. Out of those four animals, the least valuable is the mule. So in other words, they were not given prime or premium animals in order to be able to work their land. The problem with the mule primarily is the fact that you can't get them to reproduce. A mule is a combination of a horse and a donkey. The reason why plantation owners, many, many years prior to this, combined the horse and the donkey is they wanted the donkey's immune system. Donkeys are formidable animals that can be out in all weather. The horse, on the other hand, is a lot more sensitive to weather extremes. So by taking the donkey, hoping to capture that immune system, mating that with the horse for size and strength, which you had was a mule then, coming out of the horse, which therefore unfortunately the one thing that the mule can't do, the females, is reproduce. So that would mean that getting a mule, hey, that's great, but you have to keep your eyes out. You're going to have to raise funds to eventually replace that mule, which of course means they're going to have to buy it or trade it for another mule, a horse, ox, or what have you. So within this time period, 1865 to 1867, becomes known as what we call Federal Reconstruction, which again, as we're talking about, that's where the Freedmen's Bureau was all a part of this. What also sadly happens at this time is the rise of what becomes known as the Black Codes. The Black Codes is a term that actually has four different definitions throughout both halves of American history. In this part here, in our early part of the second half of U.S. history, what the Black Codes was is it allowed civilian authorities to arrest any African American who couldn't show proof of employment and show proof of residency. Now, for my listeners, especially American listeners, scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I actually didn't know that illegally you had to show proof of that. You don't. You didn't then, you didn't now. Now, nobody needs to show proof of either of those, that I have a job or that I have a current place to call home. And you didn't then either, as long as you were white. The way the law interpreted and the government interpreted, now these again are your state governments, your county governments, is that arresting African-Americans who couldn't show proof of employment or show proof of residency, that was able to propagate an institution that the northerners patted themselves on the back thinking that they ended and gave themselves credit for the institution of slavery yes this rise of the black codes was allowing the institution of slavery to continue by other means as we're going to see it also barred african-americans from any job that had supervision type responsibilities they could not serve on a jury. They could not possess guns. And they also had to make sure that they knew how to dress. How to dress? Yes, the pants that the men would wear or shirts or the dresses that the women would wear. You had to be sure that those outfits, that those, what they wore, fit within the requirements of these black codes. Now, some of you may be asking, hey, where, where could I find these black codes written? Yeah, good luck with that. These were on the present. These were out there. You just knew, but there was never a document you could point to, to say this is where and why it's legal. Here's your physical written proof. You didn't. Because if an African American violated that, everybody around that person would know it because of the way that they most likely would be killed, if not tortured, and then killed. So what am I talking about in terms of clothing? Well, for example, let's take a man. Man could not wear a shirt that had cuffs, that had a collar, pants that had a cuff or pleats. A woman could not wear a skirt with pleats or a shirt with cuffs. So what's the common denominator, I ask you, of cuffs, pleats, and collars? The common denominator is that that's extra clothing material. It's a little bit more expensive. And a former slave, in the white southerner's mind, and many northerners, had no right to show that. No right to be able to afford that. Could they smoke? Sure, as long as it was only cigarettes. Because pipe and cigar tobacco and cigars themselves, that was for the upper class. And that is something that never better be caught in the hands of a black man. So again, this is sadly the other side of this federal program called reconstruction. And more bad news. And that's that term which most of my students have never heard called counter reconstruction. As its name implies, these were physical, real efforts for Southerners and eventually many Northerners, and not all Southerners, but a vast majority, to make sure that the efforts that they took to counter this federal program called Reconstruction. What did it look like? In the sense of intimidation, that would come through a new group, initially of Southerners, of some Southerners, and would branch out throughout the whole United States of a group of people that got together, a group of white men who got together to try to intimidate black men from not only registering, not only voting, but even blocking them from registering to vote. And if they did register to vote, to make darn sure that they didn't get to the voting booths on election day, and even making sure that white sympathetic southerners didn't get to the voting booths. You know of them by their simple all white, shall we call it, uniform. That's right. That white smock that goes over their chest and down almost like a dress and the white triangular hats. The uniform, if we wanna call it that, of the infamous ku klux klan the kkk the ku klux klan a title derived from the greek word kuklos which means circle the sight of those men in that uniform i can't even call it a costume there's nothing that There's no word fits to to appropriately mock them as it is deservedly so why did they wear the white, though? And this is where I pause my class for a moment and I turn to my students and I and I do bring up a picture of the KKK. I want them to reminder of what they look like. And I ask them why they have an almost complete disguise from head to toe because it's not only the hat and the dress or the smock, but it's also the face shield as well. So you only see their eyes. Why did they want to disguise their identity? And it more often than not, I get some very naive and interesting answers. And that student will raise their hand and say, oh, I'm sure they wanted not people, they didn't want anybody to know that who they were, that they were a member of the KKK, and I, so I pressed them. Why wouldn't they want to know it? Well, and maybe another student chimes in at this point and says, well, I'm sure because they're either embarrassed that they're, or, or afraid. I said, no, that's not the reason they wore those costumes. They wore those uniforms. They weren't dressed in all white because they were intimidated or ashamed not even close. I sound a student will say, well, for intimidation. Oh, yeah, that was part of it. But the real effect of their intimidation wasn't just the all-white appearance. It's the domino effect of keeping the identity disclosed. And sadly, I countless times I see the expression, the, the, the long faces of my students when they realize after I explained this quick analogy of the way it worked. Imagine that I, I'm just going to put it on me here, imagine that I am a member of the KKK, and I go home one night, and I see my neighbor next door cutting his lawn, or trimming his bushes, or maybe just sitting out on the porch. And I go up to my neighbor, and I say, hey, Jim, or Bob, or whatever his name is, yeah, I notice, you know, you've got your textile mill down near the river, notice you had some help wanted signs up last week, but no help wanted signs up this week. And he looks at me and he says, "Oh yeah, Chris, yeah, I, I, I don't need to hire anybody. I'm all I So how are you doing, Chris? How, how's the Mrs. and how's the kid? Oh, they're, they're doing good. But, but tell me, Jim, why'd you take the sign down? You, you, you hired people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm noticing that he's trying to change the subject. So I said, "Well, look, how many people did you hire? Hire? Well, that's really the responsibility of my hiring manager, I, Jim? How many people you hire? Well, three. Wait, okay. I mean, whichever is it make like, three? Who are they, Jim?" who'd you hire? And Jim does everything he can to not share with me that he offered one or more of those positions to an African-American. So finally, after I press him hard enough, he says, yeah, I hired minorities. I hired three black men. Or three black women. And boy, I'll tell you, they they, they work great. They show up on time. They're, they're I'm able to slowly educate them on what they need to do for the job, etc. No complaints at all. But but Chris, really, can we keep this between us? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Jim. I was just curious. Well, good for you. Yeah, you got your 100% employment there. Hopefully business will continue to boom for you. Well, tell the missus I said hello. We'll see you around. Well, listeners, when I attend my next KKK meeting, And the quote unquote wizard strikes the gavel and says, is there any new business we have to discuss? What do you think I have to say? Yeah, that's right. I've got a neighbor here who, um, shall we say, needs to be set straight because he's obviously not getting it. So eventually the message will be relayed to Jim. Oh, it might start with nothing more than a rock through the window with a message on it saying fire your African-American workers. And of course, they would use a derogatory term for that, but fire them. And if they weren't fired a couple of days later, it might be several bricks or rocks through several windows with the same message on it. And then after that, if Jim still is holding out Maybe it's just a message put on a picnic basket on their front porch with a message that says, I know exactly the path that your kids go to and from school. Wouldn't it be a shame if they never made it home? You might want to rethink your recent hires. Listeners, how far do you expect Jim and his wife to go keeping those African Americans employed, what do you really expect them to do when their everything is being threatened? Because eventually the rocks can also go through the the windows at the textile mill, fires can be set at home or at the place of employment Don't say burning crosses yet. That's not until the 20th century, but clearly the KKK have no bounds. They have no ceiling. They have no limits because the law is not only on their side, but most likely one or more members of the police departments and sheriff offices are members of the KKK. How do you fight that? That's part of the reason for the violence that ensues after the American Civil War was drawn to a close. The sad question I have to put to the class, was it effective? Well, consider that in 1871, somehow 96% of African-Americans could vote in the state of Mississippi alone. But how many actually turned out at the average election? Out of 96%, 0.5%. So, using hard numbers in one state alone, yes, sadly. The KKK was then, as well as sadly through this day in the 21st century, unfortunately, very effective. So effective was the effort, were the efforts of the KKK that later on, it evolved to be against Jews, against Catholics, to the point that you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute, who was safe in KKK society? Well, just remember the insect, or remember the letters, W-A-S-P, WASP. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. So white or Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, meaning generally from the northern, northwestern German, uh, European countries. And of course, P for Protestant, as long as you weren't Catholic or Jewish. Where and how did the KKK get their justification to not only exist, but how did they recruit eventually thousands and thousands of members. You ready for this? They're going to point to science. They're actually going to name scientists as proof of their reason for their effectiveness and why they should be in existence. And that's what we'll begin with in our third podcast on the second half of American history. But again, please remember that as the KKK continued to Evolve, so too did their focus. Initially, the KKK effectiveness and their actual actions only basically rose and fell around midterm and presidential election years. But later on, as it evolved to be against Jews and Catholics, and that's where we get into the burning crosses, that's when the KKK evolved to the point of being ever present throughout American society. And if you think that when we start the next podcast that I'm simply gonna give you an update on where it was and how it ended, as they, how it, where they were as the 1800s came to an end, oh no, no, I'm gonna share with you the same things that I share with my students that are sitting in front of me. I'm gonna show you the latest 21st century efforts that the KKK is using to recruit members. To the point, when I said before that they weren't ashamed of their efforts, that they weren't hiding in behind their disguise because of any kind of shame, oh no. Not only was that not the case then, it's not the case today. And if you think it is, why would the KKK on one of the advertisements that I show my classes, why? would they give you a website and a phone number and a contact person? No, that's sadly how bold they still are in the 21st century. But that brings this discussion of the second episode of, or podcast episode of the second half of American history. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions you might have or book recommendations. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great remainder of your day.